Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and EA communities into audio. This is, Future Matters, April 2022, published by Pablo on April 23, 2022 on the Effective Altruism Forum. The remedies for all our diseases will be discovered long after we are dead, and the world will be made a fit place to live in. It is to be hoped that those who live in those days will look back with sympathy to their known and unknown benefactors. John Stuart Mill. Future Matters is a newsletter about long-termism. Each month we collect and summarize long-termism-relevant research, share news from the long-termism community, and feature a conversation with a prominent long-termist. You can also subscribe on Substack, listen on your favorite podcast platform and follow on Twitter. Research. Scott Alexander's long-termism versus existential risk worries that long-termism may be a worse brand, though not necessarily a worse philosophy, than existential risk. It seems much easier to make someone concerned about transformative AI by noting that it might kill them and everyone else, than by pointing out its effects on people in the distant future. We think that Alexander raises a valid worry, although we aren't sure the worry favors the existential risk branding over the long-termism branding as much as he suggests. Existential risks are, after all, defined as risks to humanity's long-term potential. Both of these concepts, in fact, attempt to capture the core idea that what ultimately matters is mostly located in the far future. Existential risk uses the language of potential and emphasizes threats to it, whereas long-termism instead expresses the idea in terms of value and the duties it creates. Maybe the existential risk branding seems to address Alexander's worry better because it draws attention to the threats to this value, which are disproportionately, but not exclusively, located in the short term, while the long-termism branding emphasizes instead the determinants of value, which are in the far future. In general versus AI-specific explanations of existential risk neglect, Stefan Schubert asks why we systematically neglect existential risk. The standard story invokes general explanations, such as cognitive biases and coordination problems. But Schubert notes that people seem to have specific biases that cause them to underestimate AI risk, for example because AI scenarios sound outlandish and counterintuitive. If unaligned AI is the greatest source of existential risk in the near term, then these AI-specific biases could explain most of our neglect. Max Roser's The Future is Vast is a powerful new introduction to long-termism. His graphical representations do well to convey the scale of humanity's potential, and have made it onto the Wikipedia entry for long-termism. Thomas Qua's effectiveness as a conjunction of multipliers makes the important observation that, one a person's impact can be decomposed into a series of impact multipliers and that, two, these terms interact multiplicatively, rather than additively, with each other. For example, donating 80% instead of 10% multiplies impact by a factor of 8 and earning $1 million per year instead of $250k slash year multiplies impact by a factor of 4, but doing both of these things multiplies impact by a factor of 32. Qua shows that many other common EA choices are best seen as multipliers of impact, and notes that multipliers related to judgment and ambition are especially important for long-termists. The first installment in a series on learning from crisis, Jan Colviet's experimental long-termism, Theory Needs Data, co-written with Gavin Leach, recounts the author's motivation to launch Epidemic Forecasting, a modeling and forecasting platform that sought to present probabilistic data to decision-makers and the general public. Colviet realized that his long-termist models had relatively straightforward implications for the COVID pandemic, such that trying to apply them to this case, one, had the potential to make a direct, positive difference to the crisis and, two, afforded an opportunity to experimentally test those models. While the first of these effects had obvious appeal, Colviet considers the second especially important from a long-termist perspective, attempts to think about the long-term future lack rapid feedback loops, 
and disciplines that aren't tightly anchored to empirical reality are much more likely to go astray. He concludes that long-termists should engage more often in this type of experimentation, and generally pay more attention to the long-termist value of information that near-termist projects can sometimes provide. Reese Lindmark's FTX Future Fund and Long-Termism considers the significance of the Future Fund within the long-termist ecosystem by examining trends in EA funding over time. Interested readers should look at the charts in the original post for more details, but roughly it looks like open philanthropy has allocated about 20% of its budget to long-termist causes in recent years, accounting for about 80% of all long-termist grantmaking. On the assumption that Open Phil gives $200 million to long-termism in 2022, the Future Fund lower bound target of $100 million already positions it as the second largest long-termist grantmaker, with roughly a 30% share. Lindmark's analysis prompted us to create a metaculous question on whether the Future Fund will give more than open philanthropy to long-termist causes in 2022. At the time of publication, April 22, 2022, the community predicts that the Future Fund is 75% likely to outspend open philanthropy. Holden Karnofsky's debating myself on whether extra lives lived are as good as deaths prevented is an engaging imaginary dialogue between a proponent and an opponent of total utilitarianism. Karnofsky manages to cover many of the key debates in population ethics, including those surrounding the intuition of neutrality, the procreation asymmetry, the repugnant and very repugnant conclusions, and the impossibility of theory X, in a highly accessible yet rigorous manner. Overall, this blog post struck us as one of the best popular, informal introductions to the topic currently available. Matthew Barnett shares thoughts on the risks from SETI. People underestimate the risks from passive SETI, scanning for alien signals without transmitting anything. We should consider the possibility that alien civilizations broadcast messages designed to hijack or destroy their recipients. At a minimum, we should treat alien signals with as much caution as we would a strange email attachment. However, current protocols are to publicly release any confirmed alien messages, and no one seems to have given much thought to managing downside risk. Overall, Barnett estimates a 0.1 to 0.2% chance of extinction from SETI over the next 1,000 years. Now might be a good opportunity for long-termists to figure out, and advocate for, some more sensible policies. Scott Alexander provides an epic commentary on the long-running debate about AI takeoff speeds. Paul Cristiano thinks it more likely that improvements in AI capabilities, and the ensuing transformative impacts on the world, will happen gradually. Eliezer Yudkowsky thinks there will be a sudden, sharp jump in capabilities, around the point we build AI with human-level intelligence. Alexander presents the two perspectives with more clarity than their main proponents, and isolates some of the core disagreements. It's the best summary of the takeoff debate we've come across. Buxlegaris points out that takeoff speeds have a huge effect on what it means to work on AIX risk. In fast takeoff worlds, AI risk will never be much more widely accepted than it is today, because everything will look pretty normal until we reach AGI. The majority of AI alignment work that is done before this point will be from the sorts of existential risk-motivated people working on alignment now. In slow takeoff worlds, by contrast, AI researchers will encounter and tackle many aspects of the alignment problem in miniature, before AI is powerful enough to pose an existential risk. So a large fraction of alignment work will be done by researchers motivated by normal incentives, because making AI systems that behave well is good for business. In these worlds, existential risk-motivated researchers today need to be strategic, and identify and prioritize aspects of alignment that won't be solved by default in the course of AI progress. In the comments, John Wentworth argues that there will be stronger incentives to conceal alignment problems than to solve them. Therefore, Contra Schlageris, he thinks AI risk will remain neglected even in slow takeoff worlds. 
Lin Chuan Zhang's potentially great ways forecasting can improve the long-term future identifies several different paths via which short-range forecasting can be useful from a long-termist perspective. These include, 1. Improving long-termist research by outsourcing research questions to skilled forecasters. 2. Improving long-termist grantmaking by predicting how potential grants will be assessed by future evaluators. 3. Improving long-termist outreach by making claims more legible to outsiders. And, 4. Improving the long-termist training and vetting pipeline by tracking forecasting performance in large-scale public forecasting tournaments. Zhang's companion post, Early Warning Forecasting Center, What It Is, and Why It'd Be Cool, proposes the creation of an organization whose goal is to make short-range forecasts on questions of high long-termist significance. A foremost use case is early warning for AI risks, bio-risks, and other existential risks. Besides outlining the basic idea, Zhang discusses some associated questions, such as why the organization should focus on short rather than long-range forecasting, why it should be a forecasting center rather than a prediction market, and how the center should be structured. Dylan Matthews is the biggest funder of anti-nuclear war programs is taking its money away looks at the reasons prompting the MacArthur Foundation to announce its exit from grantmaking in nuclear security. For reference, in 2018, the foundation accounted for 45% of all philanthropic funding in the field. The decision was partly based on the conclusions of what appears to be a flawed report by the consulting firm ORS Impact, which repeatedly seemed to blame the MacArthur strategy for not overcoming structural forces that one foundation could never overcome. Fortunately, there are some hopeful developments in this space, as we report in the next section. Matthews also examines Congress's epic pandemic funding failure. Per one recent estimate, COVID-19 cost the U.S. upwards of $10 trillion. The Biden administration proposed spending $65 billion to reduce the risk of future pandemics, including major investments in vaccine manufacturing capacity, therapeutics, and early warning systems. Congress isn't keen, and is agreeing to a mere $2 billion of spending, better than nothing, but nowhere near enough to materially reduce pandemic risk. Aileen Anellos who is protecting animals in the long-term future, describes a bizarre educational program, funded by the United States Department of Agriculture, that stimulates students to think about ways to raise chickens on Mars. Although factory farming doesn't strike us as particularly likely to persist for more than a few centuries, either on Earth or elsewhere in the universe, we do believe that other scenarios involving defenseless moral patients, including digital sentience, warrant serious long-termist concern. Over the past few weeks, several posts on the EA forum have raised various concerns regarding the recent influx of funding to the effective altruism community. We agree with Stefan Schubert that George Rosenfeld's free-spending EA might be a big problem for optics and epistemics is the strongest of these critical articles. Rosenfeld's first objection, optics, is that, realities aside, many people, including committed effective altruists, are starting to perceive lots of EA spending as not just wasteful, but also self-serving. Besides exposing the movement to damaging external criticism, this perception may repel proto-EAs and, over time, alter the composition of our community. Rosenfeld's second objection, epistemics, is that, because one can now get plenty of money by becoming a group organizer or by participating in other EA activities, it has become more difficult to think critically about the movement. Rosenberg concludes by sharing some suggestions on how to mitigate these problems. News. Open Philanthropy has launched the Century Fellowship, offering generous support to early career individuals doing long-termist relevant work. Applications to join the 2022 cohort are open until the end of the year and will be assessed on a rolling basis. The Center for the Governance of AI is hiring an operations manager and associate. Applications are open until May 15th. William McCaskill's long-awaited book, What We Owe the Future, is available to pre-order.
It will be released on August 16 in the United States and on September 1 in the United Kingdom. The Cambridge Existential Risks Initiative published a collection of cause profiles to accompany their 2022 Summer Research Fellowship. It includes overviews of climate change, AI safety, nuclear risk, and meta, as well as other supplementary articles. The 80,000 Hours podcast released two relevant conversations, one with Joan Rolfing on how to avoid catastrophic nuclear blunders, and one with Sam Bankman-Fried on taking a high-risk approach to entrepreneurship and altruism. Upon learning that the MacArthur Foundation was leaving the field of nuclear security, Longview Philanthropy decided to launch its own nuclear security grant-making program. Carl Robichaud, who until 2021 was program officer at the Carnegie Corporation, running the second-largest nuclear security grant-making program, will be joining full-time next year. Provided that promising enough opportunities are found, Longview expects to make at least $10 million in grants, and this amount may grow substantially depending on what new opportunities they are able to identify. Longview is also hiring for a co-lead on the program. They are looking for applicants with a strong understanding of the implications of long-termism and you, dear reader of this newsletter, might be just the right candidate. Apply here. Last month, we wrote about the Future Funds Project Ideas Competition. The awards have now been announced. Six submissions received each a prize of $5,000. Infrastructure to support independent researchers. EA Content Translation Service. A regulatory failsafe for catastrophic or existential biorisks. Datasets for AI alignment research. High-quality human data. Detailed stories about the future. A working group on civilizational refugees composed of Lin Chuan Zhang, A.J. Carper and an anonymous collaborator is looking for a technically competent volunteer or short-term contractor to help them refine and sharpen their plans. Rethink Priorities has a number of positions open in operations and research. Since the start of 2021, RP has grown from 15 to 40, and plans to have 60 staff by end of year. Eli Lifland and Misha Yagudin awarded prizes to some particularly impactful forecasting writing. Ryan Beck on whether genetic engineering will raise IQ by at least 10 points by 2050. Kasioff on whether synthetic biological weapons will infect at least 100 people by 2030. Fiane on when carbon capture will cost less than $50 per ton. Rhodioflagellum on how many gene-edited babies will be born by 2030. The Berlin Hub, an initiative inspired by the EA Hotel, plans to convert a full hotel or similar building into a co-living space later this year. Express your interest here. Conversation with Petra Kosinen. Petra Kosinen is a doctoral candidate in philosophy at the University of Oxford. Her DPhil thesis, supervised by Andreas Mogensen and Taruji Thomas, focuses on population ethics and decision theory, especially issues surrounding probability fanaticism. Previously, she studied at the University of Glasgow and the University of Edinburgh. Later this year, she will be starting a postdoc at the newly launched Population Well-Being Initiative, which aspires to be the world's leading center for research on utilitarianism. She is also a Global Priorities Fellow at the Forethought Foundation and a participant of the FTX Fellowship. Future Matters, some of your research focuses on what you call probability discounting and whether it undermines long-termism. Could you tell us what you mean by probability discounting and your motivation for looking at this? Petra Kosinen, Probability discounting is the idea that we should ignore tiny probabilities in practical decision-making. Probability discounting has been proposed in response to cases that involve very small probabilities of huge payoffs, like Pascal's mugging. For those who are not familiar with this case, it goes like this, a stranger approaches you and promises to use magic that will give you a thousand quadrillion happy days in the seventh dimension if you pay him a small amount of money. Should you do that? Well, there is a very small, but non-zero, probability that the stranger is telling the truth.
And if he is telling the truth, then the payoff is enormous. Provided that the payoff is sufficiently great, the offer has positive expected utility, or at least that's the idea. Also, the mugger points out that if you have a non-zero credence in the mugger being able to deliver any finite amount of utility, then the mugger can always increase the payoff until the offer has positive expected utility, at least if your utilities are unbounded. Probability discounting avoids the counterintuitive implication that you should pay the mugger by discounting the tiny probability of the mugger telling the truth down to zero. More generally, probability discounting is one way to avoid fanaticism, a term used to refer to the philosophical view that for every bad outcome, there is a tiny probability of a horrible outcome that is worse, and that for every good outcome, there is a tiny probability of a great payoff that is better. Other possible ways of avoiding fanaticism are, for example, having bounded utilities or conditionalizing on knowledge before maximizing expected utility. Future matters, within probability discounting, you distinguish between naive discounting and other forms of discounting. What do you mean by naive discounting? Petra Kosinen, naive discounting is one of the simplest ways of cashing out probability discounting. On this view, there is some threshold probability such that outcomes whose probabilities are below this threshold are ignored by conditionalizing on not obtaining these outcomes. One obvious problem with naive discounting is where this threshold is located. When are probabilities small enough to be discounted? Some have suggested possible thresholds. For example, Buffon suggested that the threshold should be 1 in 10,000. And Condorcet gave an amusingly specific threshold, 1 in 144,768. Buffon chose his threshold because it was the probability of a 56-year-old man dying in one day, an outcome reasonable people usually ignore. Condorcet had a similar justification. More recently, Montan has suggested a threshold of 1 in 2 quadrillion, significantly lower than the thresholds given by the historical thinkers. Montan thinks that the threshold is subjective within reason, there is no single threshold for everybody. Another problem for naive discounting comes from individuating outcomes. The problem is that if we individuate outcomes very finely by giving a lot of information about them, then all outcomes will have probabilities that are below the threshold. One possible solution is to individuate outcomes by utilities. The idea is that outcomes are considered the same outcome if their utilities are the same. This doesn't fully solve the problem though. In some cases, all outcomes might have zero probability. Imagine for example an ideally shaped dart that is thrown on a dartboard. The probability that it hits a particular point may be zero. Lastly, one problem for naive discounting is that it violates dominance. Imagine a lottery that gives you a tiny probability of some prize and otherwise nothing, and compare this to a lottery that surely gives you nothing. The former lottery dominates the latter one, but naive discounting says they are equally good. Future matters, are there forms of probability discounting that avoid the problems of naive discounting? Petra Kosinen, one could solve the previous dominance violation by considering very small probability outcomes as tiebreakers in cases where the prospects are otherwise equally good. This is not enough to avoid violating dominance though, because the resulting view still violates dominance in a more complicated case. There are also many other ways of cashing out probability discounting. Naive discounting ignores very small probability outcomes. Instead, one could ignore states of the world that have tiny probabilities of occurring. The different versions of this kind of state discounting have other problems, though. For example, they give cyclic preference orderings or violate dominance principles in other ways. There is also tail discounting. On this view, you should first order all the possible outcomes of a prospect in terms of betterness. Then you should ignore the edges, that is, the very best and the very worst outcomes. Tail discounting solves the problems with individuating outcomes and dominance violations. But it also has one big problem, 
it can be money pumped. This means that someone with this view would end up paying for something they could have kept for free, which makes it less plausible as a theory of instrumental rationality. Future matters, why do you think that probability discounting, in any of its forms, does not undermine long-termism? Petra Kosinen, in one of my papers I go through three arguments against long-termism from discounting small probabilities. I focus on existential risk mitigation as a long-termist intervention. The first argument is a very obvious one, that the probabilities of existential risks are so tiny that we should just ignore existential risks. This is the low risks argument. But, it does not seem to be the case that the risks are so small. Even in the next 100 years many existential risks are estimated to be above any reasonable discounting thresholds. For example, Toby Ord has estimated that net existential risk in the next 100 years is one-sixth. The British astronomer Sir Martin Rees has an even more pessimistic view. He thinks that the odds are no better than 50-50 that our present civilization survives to the end of the century. And the risks from specific sources also seem to be relatively high. Some estimates Ord gives include, for example, 1 in 30 risk from engineered pandemics and 1 in 10 risk from unaligned artificial intelligence. See Michael Ard's database for many more estimates. But now we come to the problem of how outcomes should be individuated. Although the risks in the next 100 years are above any reasonable discounting thresholds, the probability of an existential catastrophe due to a pandemic on the 4th of January 2055 at 1300 hours to 1400 hours might be tiny. Similarly the risk might be tiny at 14.00 to 1500 hours, and so on. Of course ignoring a high net existential risk on the basis of individuating outcomes this finally would be mad. But it is difficult to see how naive discounting can avoid this implication. Even if we individuate outcomes by utilities, we might end up individuating outcomes too finely because every second that passes could add a little bit of utility to the world. I mentioned earlier that tail discounting can solve the problem of outcome individuation. But what does it say about existential risk mitigation? Consider one type of existential risk, human extinction. Tail discounting probably wouldn't tell us to ignore the possibility of a near-term human extinction even if its probability was tiny. Recall that tail discounting only ignores the very best and the very worst outcomes, provided that their probabilities are tiny. As long as there are sufficiently high probabilities of both better and worse outcomes than human extinction, human extinction will be a normal outcome in terms of value so we should not ignore it on this view. The second argument against long-termism that I discuss in the paper concern the size of the future. For long-termism to be true, it also needs to be true that there is in expectation a great number of individuals in the far future, otherwise it would not be the case that relatively small changes in the probability of an existential catastrophe have great expected value. The small future argument states that once we ignore very small probability scenarios, such as space settlement and digital mines, the expected number of individuals in the far future is too small for long-termism to be true. Again, consider tail discounting. Space settlement and digital mines might be the kind of unlikely best-case scenarios that tail discounting ignores. So is the small future argument right if you accept tail discounting? No, it does not seem so. Even if you ignore these scenarios, in expectation there seems to be enough individuals in the far future, at least if we take the far future to start in 100 years. This is true even on the relatively conservative numbers that Hillary Greaves and Will McCaskill use in their paper The Case for Strong Long-Termism. The final argument against long-termism that I discuss in the paper states that the probability of making a difference to whether an existential catastrophe occurs or not is so small that we should ignore it. This is the no-difference argument. Earlier I mentioned the idea of state discounting on which you should ignore states that are associated with tiny probabilities. State discounting captures the idea of the no-difference argument naturally, 
there is that one state in which an existential catastrophe happens no matter what you do, one state in which an existential catastrophe does not happen no matter what you do and the third state in which your actions can make a difference to whether the catastrophe happens or not. And, if the third state is associated with a tiny probability, then you should ignore it. I think the no-difference argument is the strongest of the three arguments against long-termism that I discuss. Plausibly, at least for many of us, the probability of making a difference is indeed small, possibly less than some reasonable discounting thresholds. But there are some responses to this argument. First, as I mentioned earlier, the different versions of state discounting face problems like cyclic preference orderings and dominance violations. So we might want to reject state discounting for these reasons. Secondly, state discounting faces collective action type problems. For example, imagine an asteroid heading towards the Earth. There are multiple asteroid defense systems and, unrealistically, each has a tiny probability of hitting the asteroid and preventing a catastrophe. But the probability of preventing a catastrophe is high if enough of them try. Suppose that attempting to stop the asteroid involves some small cost. State discounting would then recommend against attempting to stop the asteroid, because the probability of making a difference is tiny for each individual. Consequently, the asteroid will almost certainly hit the Earth. To solve these kind of cases, state discounting would need to somehow take into account the choices other people face. But if it does so, then it no longer undermines long-termism. This is because plausibly we collectively, for example the effective altruism movement, can make a non-negligible difference to whether an existential catastrophe happens or not. So, my response to the no-difference argument is that if there is a solution to the collective action problems, then this solution will also block the argument against long-termism. But if there is no solution to these problems, then state discounting is significantly less plausible as a theory. Either way, we don't need to worry about the no-difference argument. To sum up, my overall conclusion is that discounting small probabilities doesn't undermine long-termism. Future matters, thanks, Petra. For helpful feedback on our first issue, we thank Sawyer Bernath, Ryan Carey, Evelyn Sierra, Alex Lawson, Howie Lempel, Garrison Lovely, and David Mears. We owe a special debt of gratitude to Finn Morehouse for invaluable technical advice and assistance. It's also possible that Alexander is using existential risk to just mean risk of human extinction. As the author acknowledges, this point has been made before, see for example this talk by Toby Ord or this paper by Will McCaskill. But Quas Post presents the insight with particular clarity and vividness, and it may help even those already familiar with it better internalize it. For roughly the reasons articulated in this comment by Robert Wiblin. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.